And once more, it is What's Involved. Man, have I got a special guest for you at this time. And, and somebody I've been wanting to talk to for a while. And, uh, well, when the book came out, I had a very, very good reason to, to reach out and to want to chat to him. Who am I talking about? I am talking about Alan Ambor and his uh, book that he's just re- released called The Taste for Life, How the Spur Legend Was Born. And trust me, it is a legend. Hello, Alan. Morning. Hello, David. It's so good to have you along with us. And uh, congrats on, on the book and getting it out. I was, I was fascinated. Um, it, it truly is sort of a rock and roll ride uh, uh, through the, the sort of history of, of Spur and franchising, et cetera, et cetera. So before we look at, at the book and, and, and what is in the book, tell me a bit about Alan, because uh, you, you certainly, you led on the one hand a very sort of normal average South African life in your early years, but there was this, I pick up that there was this always this lust for life and a, a sense of adventure. So, so talk me through Alan's younger years. Well, I was blessed with a lot of energy. I grew up in Johannesburg in Bellevue, Yeovil Boys Primary, and then Highlands North High. And uh, I was very lucky that my parents were interested in the world, I think is a good way to put it. They both stemmed from Europe, having fled the Second World War, fled the Nazis, and they had to set up from scratch. My dad had a bed in his office, and uh, everything was grown from there, as it were. And I learned that you have to earn what you achieve. My mom was a very hardworking woman. She had been on the brink of becoming a medical doctor, and she also was a concert pianist. And she had to flee and couldn't carry on with anything thereafter of that sort. And they met in South Africa and married, and I came along eventually in the middle of the war. And I was given a lot of freedom in my life being an only child in a suburb like Highlands North where we moved to. I had a range of pals, and I grew up happily doing what kids do, riding bicycles, buying watermelons off the wagon that was pulled by oxen up the street, playing tennis. And uh, eventually I ended up at Wits University after working first. And in order to pay for my studies, because my dad said I wasn't studying hard enough for his liking, I said to him that I would earn my living uh, by working in a local steakhouse that had just opened up. And from there, the idea grew that resulted in me going to Cape Town and opening my own business. I was meant to be franchised by the company I worked for, but they understood retail. That's where I learned retail, working for them as a waiter. But they didn't understand franchising. And in actual fact, their little burgeoning group um, ended up by closing. And they started up again through some cousins from Greece who came to South Africa. But that's a whole nother story. During my time in the steakhouse business, I used to go every year on holiday overseas to places like Greece and Spain. I was very lucky and I was spoilt. And in the mid 
early 80s, just before uh, P.W. Boerter's Rubicon speech, I ended up going to India where on a train, uh, um, an Indian major who obviously was fiercely opposed to apartheid, when he learned I came from South Africa, quizzed me very, very strongly. And he was then joined the next morning after he slept on the train from Mumbai to Delhi by his group of cohorts. And they started all over again on me. And the only way that I could see myself clear to being feeling relaxed and safe, as it were, was to assure him that P.W. Boerter was to cross the Rubicon, which, of course, he never did. So that's just a smattering of my early years. And, and that's fantastic. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, because I highly recommend people get the book and read it, um, there is a lot more in there. Uh, there's a car accident in there. There's stories of Alan's uh, uh, national service. Um, I was actually quite amazed that you only you only did national service for for a couple of months back uh, back in those days, and then obviously yes. it's before they'd increased it to the the two year stint that I did. Um, but so you then went with uh, with this company. Um, and, and you sort of said, okay, you're now going to go and start a steakhouse in Cape Town. Yeah. Did you at that stage have an idea for the name? Because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated about the name and I'm also fascinated um, by the, the, the image. Um, and and all, as long as I can remember, we've always had this was like a Wild West connotation and the, the Indian chief with the headdress. Was that something at the time that you were thinking about and planning? David, actually, very interesting question. Um, what happened was this. The initial name Golden Spur um, was a name that had been used by a steakhouse that had become defunct. And when I came to Cape Town, remembering that I lived in Johannesburg and I used to drive down in my little mini over a period of two and a half years, I drove down six times trying to find premises, which were in, they weren't in short supply. They were in zero supply in Cape Town. Nobody was building. Cape Town was much more of a small town in those days. And I couldn't find anywhere to set up. And looking back, I'm absolutely amazed at the stubborn young man who was myself, who had this dream of opening a steakhouse in Cape Town because I'd come here and seen a gap in the market. I definitely knew there was a place for it. And I wanted to live here. I loved the place. And yet I kept going back to Johannesburg where my girlfriend was and where I could earn. I taught primary school soccer, I taught high school uh, English, economics, and Afrikaans uh, at two different schools for a term each because they were desperate for teachers. I had a BA, but I didn't have teacher training experience. But fortunately, that came relatively naturally to me. Um, so the name I picked up because somebody had opened up a black steer in Cape Town. They'd pinched the name from the guys who ran the Black Steer in Cape Town. And I was going to call myself Golden Steer and because I was associated with them, which is covered quite fully in the book. 
And um, I couldn't because somebody had gazumped me by using the name Black Steer. So I decided to resurrect this old name Golden Spur, which was now owned, strangely enough, by a company which I'm not sure if it exists anymore, definitely exists in terms of its products, one of which was Joko Tea and Coffee Ace, I think. But they wrote me a lawyer's letter saying that they owned the name and if I wanted to pay them 100 rand, I could have it. So I paid them 100 rand and bought the name, even though I'd been trading with it for about six months already, not knowing that they had owned and registered the name. And that was very smoothly segued and done away with. And uh, I had no problems with them, fortunately, because legal problems at that stage would have been a dreadful uh, cost and uh, a drag uh, to have to deal with that as well as run a very, very fast growing business. As far as the car accident is concerned, the reason it's in there was because as I went over the edge of this road, being driven by somebody else, I said to myself, I'm about to die. And I was very calm because we tippled over a high road down a rocky face. But I'll, I won't say any more because it's a quite, as you quite rightly point out, a, a quite an incredible story in the middle of the night, just outside Langsburg. National <laughs> Service. Sorry, David, carry on. So, you know, I was just going to say, it is indeed, and it's an amazing story. And when I was reading through it, uh, and, and your rescue was even more amazing, but you've got to read the book for that. Alan, um, yeah. we're going to take a short break now, and then uh, we'll chat some more when we come back. This is What's Involved. My special guest is Alan Ambo. Uh, he is the, the founder of Spur, just written a book called uh, The Taste for Life, How the Spur Legend Was Born. We're going to get into that a little bit more when we come back. And we're back with my special guest, Alan Amble. Um, this is what's involved, by the way, in case you missed out, in case you stepped off the planet for a bit, what's involved it is. And uh, we're chatting with Alan. So, Alan, you, you then started this Golden Spur in Cape Town. You'd spotted a gap in the market, um, and it started to do incredibly well. Talk to me about, about that phase. Well... I was meant to be supported by some people who ran a couple of steakhouses in Johannesburg. Very nice people, very good people. I'd worked for them for a number of years, and they were, it was mainly operated in the evenings when I worked uh, by two nephews of the, well, one was his son, the founder, the late George Halamandres, who, who was already in his late 60s at that stage, and his son George and his nephew Arthur had left school by then, and he opened this business, and they ran it, and I worked for them. And I got this idea in my head that Cape Town had the gap, as I said before, and that I wanted to go and live in Cape Town, and I'd been battling with all sorts of employment opportunities working for a company my father represented in England who manufactured carpets and upholstery materials, who invited me to go there because I think they hoped I'd go in and take over the business from my dad. And then I worked for a big shoe manufacturer and retailer who sadly are no longer in existence. And I had other part-time jobs. And 
I just knew that I was not happy working for other people who expected me to sit around for most of the day and not achieve anything. I was keen to show that I had ability, that I was keen to show that I could work hard, which was the ethic that my parents instilled in me. They were both very hardworking people, middle-class, decent people, um, bright, energetic, and I was imbued with that sort of ethos that they taught me, this is how you live your life. You don't sit around pretending to be working. You go for it. You achieve something. You make something of yourself. And I, I just got this mad idea in my head, mad because I was very young. When I first decided to go to Cape Town and look for premises, I was 22. By the time I opened the business, which happened about as a fluke because I did six trips before on my very last trip, by sheer chance, finding an agent, I phoned him, and he said, yes, somebody had just commissioned him to find a restaurant and other uh, retailers for a shopping center he was about to build in Newlands, Cape Town, and that was the previous day. So the timing was immaculate. It couldn't have been better. It was incredibly lucky. He took me and showed me the site. And on this very last trip to Cape Town, I'd driven down with a mate of mine, Tommy McClelland. And Tommy, I said to him, what do you think of the site? He said, no, it's terrible. Because there were these very low-roofed, uh, old, old shops that hadn't been paid for, uh, hadn't been painted for ages and looked derelict and about to fall down, which indeed they soon were going to be encouraged to do by a bulldozer, I suspect. And a shopping center, small one, was built, and I was lucky enough to get premises there. And when I started, the guys from Joburg who were meant to help me, they were meant to franchise me, they were supposed to send nine people down to help me start up, people who knew how to grill to train grillers, people who knew how to bake to train bakers, cut meat, etc., and all the things associated with franchising and opening a restaurant, and not one of them pitched up. So I and my partner and Tommy, who was the, only there for six weeks, um, we just worked like maniacs, training people, and we were blessed with the most fantastic assortment of young employees. Some of them weren't so great, and we had to move them out of the restaurant business, but most of them were absolutely superb. And I look back on it now and I'm aghast at how lucky we were to have the people walk in the door and bring their friends. Once the one came, he'd bring a cousin or a brother or a friend or a whatever. And they all turned out to be highly talented, highly skilled people, some of whom who are still alive today, I'm still in contact with. And we have a lunch at Christmas or in the new year every year except for COVID, of course. And um, it was hectic. It was madness because we were immediately assailed by customers who knew of this Joburg-style steakhouse that was now opening in Cape Town. And we did something which was very clever in a way, but in a certain sense backfired because it gave us a deluge of customers we weren't really ready to cope with and we should have started more slowly. And that idea was the day before we opened, we had sterilized our ice cream machine and we had five schools around us. 
And we told the kids after school, come and get a free ice cream. And of course, they all did. We had queues of kids waiting for their ice cream cones. And they went home and told their parents. And their parents thought, well, if this is going on, we've got to come and have a look. So the strain, the enormous amount of work that we had to do was almost overwhelming, but we were very lucky and we knew we were very lucky and we managed somehow to cope. It, it was incredible because the, the growth was incredible. But Alan, why why sort of restaurants? Why steakhouses and, and restaurants? Because, I mean, you say by your own admittance in the book that you were quite a shy person um, and, and, and wow. rather, you know, drawn back. Uh, so I would I would not have pegged you for somebody to then go, okay, well, forward facing in a restaurant business. That's where I need to be. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting question, but I think this, the truth lies in the fact that I'm, and I've got a quite a nice story on that one as well, but the truth is that I'm an only child, and I had lots of friends, as I said, when I was growing up as a youngster, and I enjoyed people, so that's one of the things that really attracted me to the steakhouse business, to be a waiter. And I was a competent waiter, and I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed being with the guys who were running the business, who became mates. We became really good friends. In fact, Arthur Belaskus was driving the car that we nearly all got killed in, in the middle of the night in the Karoo, that was referred to earlier. And we used to go on Sunday nights to the Greek tavern at the bottom of Loveday Street, uh, near Van Brander Street, and have a uh, a bit of a party most Sunday nights because we really were good friends. We weren't just employee-employer. There was a connection between us. We were mates. They were a little bit older, and there was a group of us. Some of the waiters just went with them, and we partied. So I enjoyed that whole atmosphere, and I think it brought – well, I know it brought me out of myself – and when I decided to go into the business, I knew I would have to be the guy in the front, welcoming, greeting, showing people to tables, making sure everything was working smoothly, uh, which took a bit of doing in the beginning, particularly. But that didn't phase me. I, I looked forward to it with relish and handled it under great pressure when it actually occurred. Wonderful stuff. My special guest there is Alan Amble, uh, author of A Taste for Life, How the Spur Legend Was Born. And uh, it is an absolutely fascinating book. Uh, Alan certainly has fitted a lot of living uh, into his time. We'll be back in uh, just a bit and we'll find out a bit more from Alan about uh, the spur and the legend. Because uh, obviously moving from one stall in Cape Town they then grew quite dramatically. We'll be back in just a bit. This is What's Involved. And we're back with my special guest, Alan Amble. Alan, I have to be honest, you know, talking to somebody like yourselves, this is when I think to myself, I wish I could like do multiple chats to you because there's just so much to talk about. And we literally won't be able to fit everything in in the time that we have. But let's let's move on a little bit. So the, 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 the Cape Town um, Spur, which was the, the Golden Spur, that was doing well. It was taking off. What on earth possessed you to now go, all right, I'm not working hard enough now, so I think I'll look at franchising. <laughs> I definitely was working hard enough. But what <laughs> happened was 
as I said to you earlier, there was a shortage of premises. And just as I signed the lease for Golden Spur, um, the premises that I'd been dreaming of in Seapoint came available. And um, I spoke to the guys I was, I was working for in Joburg, and they said they'd take that one on. They'd finance it. And I had a, a, a friend who was working in the steakhouse as well. And at the very end, I'd now set everything up to open Golden Spur. He came in and he ended up running the Seapoint Spur, uh, which was financed by the guys in Johannesburg. Um, one day I was running on a busy, busy Saturday night and an old schoolmate, Raymond Padowitz, walked in with a friend of his, Paul Curzon, and I said, what are you doing down here? You come on holiday. He said, no, I'm coming to live here. And I knew that he was an accountant already, he'd studied accountancy. I said, well, are you going to be an accountant? He said, no, I'm going to open a steakhouse. I thought, well, that's pretty amazing. I said, where do you want to open the steakhouse? He said he was thinking Belleville. I said, funny that, you know, the old mutual have recently phoned me uh, or written to me and said to me that they have premises in a new center they're building there. And would I like to put a steakhouse in there? And I've been thinking about it. He said, well, I would love to take those premises. I said, okay, I'll franchise you. Now, David, not to put too fine a point upon it, because as you quite rightly say, I was that busy and I used to have a mantra, which is quite interesting, that it doesn't matter who suffers as long as it's not the business. And believe you me, in the early days, we all suffered quite a lot because the physical strain and the long hours and then having to close a shop and drive the staff in a little mini because we couldn't afford a combi yet, because we had debts and we were paying off. On two trips to places like Langa, Guguletu, Athlone, Haderfelt, etc., and then only go home and sleep and get up before everybody else. So we were we were working hard, let's put it like that. And here Raymond came along wanting to go into Belleville. And because of the default of the people I'd been working for in Johannesburg and them not arriving and them not helping me set up the business, I'd learned what it took to set up the business because fortunately I had a bit of common sense and I managed to negotiate my, my way through that particular difficulty. A very close friend of mine made the day call for the place, which is still in the Spurhead office, although it's my property, and I'm no longer there for two and a half years. But I thought to myself, right, that's the answer. I'll franchise, because if you franchise, somebody else provides the money, which is a low capital uh, cost to yourself. All you costing yourself is the training of the staff. They pay their own staff, but you have the cost of training them and putting a lot of time into them and feeding them whilst they're there and managing that whole process. And franchising is a brilliant principle for growing a complex business, which is what a restaurant is, particularly a high-powered steakhouse. So that's how that started. And then when Belleville became successful, I got other guys in Cape Town approaching me and saying, we'd like to open in town. And so Apache Spur was born in Strand Street. It's crossed the road over the years. It's now elsewhere in a hotel. It was higher up the road. But 
generically, people saw that we were doing well. And so that's how I got to Bloemfontein with a guy who noticed our progress and elsewhere. It was generic and it was all franchised. Now, the, the thing that, that has impressed me over the years with the, the, the Spur Group is there's a, there's a couple of things, okay? The decor, um, I, I've always, whenever I walk into a Spur, I always have a look around and see what the decor is. There were some wonderful designs in the in the in the early days as well, which you've you've mentioned. But also, it's it's the quality and the level of service. And there is something comforting about whether you go to a spur in Brackpan or to a spur in Gatsonovater. You know what you're getting, and you know that it's going to be quality food. Is this something that you were? Because I sense maybe you were a bit fanatical about that. Um, I think manic is even more the word you should use. Uh, I really was fanatical. And I think it's very important in a business like that, or indeed in any business at all, is training. People have to share your vision. And if they don't really want to share your vision, well, they must go and share somebody else's vision or their own vision. That's the attitude. But I think one of the interesting things, David, is that in the early days where there were very, very, very few restaurants and none of the type that I opened in Cape Town, in Cape Town, we tended to attract people who were prepared to work those hours and that hard on their feet all the time with a very demanding boss quality and service-wise, namely myself, because they needed a break. Somehow, we attracted guys, one guy comes to mind who was a dropout at university, and he told me he'd, he needed a job. He'd been at the Pig and Whistle, which was a pub down the road. He dropped out with 200 Rand, which was a considerable sum in those days, and he'd eaten and drank it all at the Pig and Whistle, and now he'd come to me and he wanted a job. And I gave him a job. I fed him because he was hungry. He said he was hungry, so I fed him. I gave him a job, and he ended up being a junior partner for a number of years after working the six-month probationary period. So I needed the men who were committed, who were prepared to buy into the modus operandi, the way I wanted the place run, the way people had to be greeted. And he, this particular guy, Tony Williams, who ended up in Thailand, Tony was a, a very lovely guy with a fantastic smile and a, and a twinkle in his eye behind his gold-rimmed spectacles. And I had other guys, Manuel George, who had stopped university, had got his degree, and he joined me and he became my first junior partner. And many other people of a similar ilk. Um, there was one guy, Mar Marius Bietcher, a marvelous big mountain of a man from... Bloemfontein, who grew up poverty-stricken, and he told me that in winter, it got so cold, from the age of 14, he used to hitchhike to Durban to keep warm. So these were the sort of people that came in initially into the steakhouse business, and they were willing to work under those Rather tough circumstances. As I say, my mantra was it doesn't matter who suffers as long as it's not the business. I certainly wasn't a boss who led from behind sitting down. 
I was at the front of the charge. Wonderful stuff. It is uh, what's involved uh, with my special guest, Alan Amber. Uh, you've, got to, you've got to get hold of the book. Uh, that's all I can say. It's called A Taste for Life, How the Spur Legend Was Born. There are so many stories in it, and they are told so well. You know, the story of a, a restaurant franchise could be, sometimes you could think maybe it's a bit boring. Not this one, guaranteed. Uh, we'll be back, and we'll be wrapping it up with Alan Amber in just a bit. This is what's involved. It's so good to have you along with us. And we're back. What's involved? My special guest, Alan Amble. So, Alan, let's let's fast forward a bit because, uh, again, I'm running out of time now. But uh, yeah, you you then ended up with a bunch of spur franchises, and once again, you thought, well, that's not quite enough for me. I think we need to do more. And I think the more, the first one, if I recall correctly, the first more was the Panerotti's uh, a brand as well. Now. I mean, yeah. you've got you've got under the spur sort of banner. There's Panerotti's, there's John Dory's, and then the one that we're going to touch on as well is Rockamama's. Now, now, yeah. why <laughs> wasn't it? Couldn't you just go? Okay, I've done enough now. Let's just settle down. Or was it just this passion that you had for people and food, David? It it worked like this. When we had about ten branches, I. Put an ad in the Sunday Times looking for franchisees further afield from Cape Town. And I got an answer from a fellow in Clarkstorp by the name of Dudley Hainsworth, who wanted to open up there and eventually did. And I realized that I wouldn't be able to keep control. And I put an ad, another ad in the Sunday Times. And out of that ad came a fellow who was absolutely ideally suited to be my helper, my assistant in the head office, and his name is Gert Topat. We're still good mates today. And he joined me and he became the first area manager. And he loved riding around South Africa in the little golf that we bought him and finding premises and finding franchisees, which we both did, to match in those premises. And because of that spur grew, um, the team was a good, strong team. He again bought into the way I wanted things done. He was a chef in his own right. He traveled the world and learned English because he was German in the Bahamas. He'd grown up on, up in the, he'd grown up on an island off the coast in the Baltic Sea where his dad was a pig farmer and butcher. So he had a lot of experience in the culinary arts, as it were. And he was a fantastic driving force, very dynamic and very hardworking and very committed and a, a wonderful uh, person to have help grow the business. And one day I said to myself, we really should do pizza because – there are all these towns, Clarksdorp, Rustenburg, Cape Town, et cetera, et cetera, where people want to eat pizza. And our area managers by now, we had a few, are going there and they're looking after the spur. But in the initial stages, we eventually did quite rightly separate the brands. But in the initial stages, the spur guy could also be the Panerotti's guy. And I didn't want to put pizza in spur because – it just would have been wrong for the brand. Some steakhouse guys did offer pizza, and I felt that wasn't the answer. Pizza had to be Italian. And I wanted to call it Pavarotti's after the great singer, 
But my lawyer at the time said to me, look, when you've got 50 stores, he's going to want a franchise fee from you. So I went <laughs> through the alphabet. <laughs> yeah. I went, I went through the alphabet and pane is bread. So it became pane rotis. And then oh. Rockamamas, that was much, much later when our MD who took over from Gert, a fellow by the name of Pierre Fantonda, he was in charge of building the brands. And I was now in the marketing, advertising, creative side. You mentioned the decor earlier. That sort of came from myself working with talented artists, one of whom a mate of mine, Paddy Webster, um, used to paint red Indians all the time. Uh, and uh, the Indian story came from the spur on a cowboy boot being a harsh implement and not uh, animal friendly. And I also sensed a change in South Africa's social structure. And I felt I must give a signal to people of color that we welcome them. So I adopted the Native American Indian as our logo. And that's where that comes from. So that is a bit of a roundabout answer, but it addresses a few subjects that are dealt with in a lot more detail with a lot of other subjects in the book, um, including boardroom issues. You know, there's always politics and tensions in companies where people, as they grow, start trying to assert their own views and it becomes tougher to control them. You feel a little bit like a sheepdog sometimes having to run around keeping the sheep in the right direction. Um, but I'm not sheepish about that one. Sorry. <laughs> then, then as well, I mean, in the mix there is, is uh, John Dory's as well. And again, yeah. I mean, if, if I look at these brands, they are all very different. They've all got their own unique identities. And yet there's that underlying thread that runs through them of excellent food, excellent service. And, and I can only see your hand in that, in, in terms of guiding people along with what they do. I mean, these days you can literally, I mean, I, I, I chatted to somebody from Rockamama's a couple of years ago, and I think only one had been opened. Um, and uh, the next second, wherever we look now, there's a Rockamama's and smash burgers oh. are the thing. Yeah. So David, I think first, sorry, please carry on. I beg your pardon. Not at all. I'm over to you. Um, firstly, thank you for saying such kind words about the standard of the food and the decor, etc. And yes, mine was the original guiding hand, and uh, until two and a half years ago when I left. But other people put their input. Uh, credit must go to Pierre Fantonda for uh, sourcing both. Uh, John Dory's as a brand to purchase and Rockamama's. Um, uh, Mark Farrelly, who was our chief operating officer, went up and looked at Rockamama's and thought it had legs and it most definitely does. Uh, we had a franchisee who had some spurs who uh, started Rockamama's uh, with Pierre's permission and he said, you know, if you want to, you can buy in. And Unfortunately, we ended up paying an awful lot of money for Rockamamas, but it definitely was worthwhile because, as you quite rightly point out, that brand has grown enormously. And I don't know if you've seen the brand Hassar, 
around, but it's a upmarket steakhouse. So it's also, even though it's still quite small in numbers, it's very upmarket and it's a very, very successful little group within our group. By then, David, you must understand we'd gone public. So the game had changed a bit and assembling brands under the umbrella of the initial Spur Steak Ranch group became the name of the game. And it had its ups and its downs. Uh, under Pierre, we also uh, went overseas, which we weren't very successful at. But now we're getting much more successful at it. In Africa and the Middle East, there's Rockamamas doing well and Spurs. So, yeah, it's, it's been an incredibly interesting, exciting ride. You mentioned, Alan, that, that sort of two, 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 two and a bit years ago, you, you stepped down. Um, and obviously, you know, people would go, all right, well, Alan, you deserve that. You know, you've, 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 you've worked yourself almost uh, into, into the ground. So, so retire and just, you know, be good and do things that retired people do. And yet, and this I find fascinating, you decided not to. And then when COVID came along, you branched out into something that you do for yourself these days, and uh, and and there's a there's a charity involved. So I'm going to spill the beans. It is in the book, but I'm going to spill the beans. Um, you've been teaching yoga. I've been teaching yoga for over twenty years at the local Virgin, and when lockdown came along, one of the ladies phoned me and said, "Alan, won't you please teach us with lockdown here over Zoom?" And I said to her, "What Zoom?" And she taught me what Zoom was, and I teach yoga five times a week. Uh, the deal was in the gym, I used to go to another teacher myself for many, many years. The deal was when, we taught, when I taught on Zoom, because I couldn't walk around the room adjusting people, I do the yoga with them. I'm talking all the time. Uh, to them how they should position their bodies. And then I'll come down and look at them on the screen because they're there and I'll tell them verbally what they should adjust to make the yoga more uh, beneficial. And yoga, David, I must mention to you, is the thing that's kept me as energized, as strong, as happy, and as balanced as I am. Yoga is the best exercise for the human animal. And if anybody wants to join my yoga Zoom class, I'd love them to do so. Uh, my email address, may I say it, David? Absolutely, yes, with pleasure. Is Lambor, L-A-M-B-O-R, which is an L before my surname, at Tiskily, T-I-S for sugar, C-A-L-I, tiskily.co.za. So it's Lambor at tiskily.co.za. And all the money, which is 300 rand a month for 22 classes, which is nothing, goes to Ladles of Love charity that feed people who are poor in the Cape. Every single penny, I don't touch it. There's a I company that deals with that. I think that is fantastic. Alan, we've reached the end of our time together. And all I can say is thank you so much. Uh, this this book is amazing. I think you're an amazing human being. And, you know, to go from running this huge, massive company, because um, I think there was, at the, at the end of the day, more than like 500 franchises around uh, around the place nearly now. 600, so. Nearly 600 today. Wow. Uh, that's so brilliant. And, and I'm uh, proud it's a of testament. 
Sorry, I'm proud of the employment we've created. Absolutely. And the thing is, uh, and you'll get this in the book, and particularly if you look through, and there's, there's some lovely pictures in the book as well, is there's always been the sense of family and the sense of caring for other people. And, and I think that's also what shines through in you yourself, Alan. So thank you so much. We wish you all the success with the book. Go out and get it. It's available at all good bookstores. I'm sure it's available online as well. Uh, yes. The title... The title, once again, A Taste for Life, How the Spur Legend Was Born by Alan Ambor. Uh, once again, if you'd like to join his yoga classes, I would love to do something like that. I keep threatening to do it and I never get around to it. Uh, it's Al Ambor. So one word, Lambor at tiskily.co.za. That is an email address that's been around for a while because Tiskily was like literally one of the first uh, internet service providers, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Alan, ah. thank you. Uh, just, just thank you. That's all I can say. We wish you all the best. Have yourself a fantastic day forward. Thanks, David. All the best to you and your listeners. Thank you. There we go. Wraps it up for this edition of What's Involved. My special guest there was Alan Ambor, uh, author of A Taste for Life, How the Spur Legend Was Born. Do yourself a favor, get out there and read the book. Until next time, uh, look after yourselves, take care, and thank you for listening.